1: With whom will crypto bank now as the post Silvergate and signature reality sinks in? Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. Today, I'm joined by David Duong from CoinDesk. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks, Ash. Plenty to discuss when it comes to crypto. But before we do that, I want to update our viewers on one important story in the traditional banking sector. Shares of one of the largest banks, Credit Suisse, are sharply lower this morning. That's after its top shareholder, Saudi National Bank, said it would not invest more money into Credit Suisse. Uh, Real Vision Macros analyst James Hollowell joins us now. James, give us the breakdown. What's happening right now?
0: Hey, Ash. And hey, David. Um, What a day. It feels like we've been uh, saying that for the last week, pretty much. Uh, Friday was, of course, tumultuous uh, with SVB. And then, uh, yeah, we have the, the latest installment, which is coming from uh, from Europe and Credit Suisse specifically. So this this bank has been in ruins for some time now. And I think it says a lot when, just to provide some context here, it says, says a lot when your biggest shareholder um, exits in the last three months. And then the next biggest, the second biggest shareholder, uh, being the Saudi National Bank, um, step in and they managed to lose 30% in the first three months of their investment. So something here is beginning to smell like a bad position. <laughs> so the, the bank itself, in, in, in terms of what led to this, I'm not sure how many people out there um, will necessarily have Along in credit Suisse. I dearly hope that nobody's been reckless or careless enough to uh, to be there. Um, may well be speculatively trading now,
1: but hey, the, James, the fundamental- let me just give us an, a quick update here in terms of what hit the wire this morning, so people have the context. Yeah. As you say, stock plunging 30%. Uh, these are all-time lows right now for the shares of credits which is traded in Switzerland. So-called bail-in bonds, these take losses first. I'm going to just read here straight from original reporting from the Wall Street Journal this morning. Quote, bid prices on 2027 on TradeWeb slid to $0.45 cents on the dollar from $0.72 cents the day before. It's hideous. Uh, they traded close to $0.90 cents at the start of the month. Uh, as you say largest shareholder, Saudi National Bank, uh, saying in a Bloomberg interview, I believe this morning, that it's not going to invest more. I mean, just just dismal, dismal news this morning. So yeah, so, so
0: the the credit, the bond side of of uh, Credit Suisse, the fixed income market is sending a very clear signal. So you've mentioned the bonds, I think it's the 2026 bonds are trading at distressed levels of this, as of this morning. So their debt is distressed, which just means that it's basically uninvestable, it's not investment grade. Um, Indicates, you know, they've got a big problem unless they find a deal. Then they're in big trouble and they need to find a deal fast. So that's why or where the Saudis have come into it. So I was saying that the previous largest shareholder had exited, longtime shareholder Harris Associates had exited um, over the past three months. The Saudis have bought in. They bought nearly 10 or they own nearly 10% of Credit Suisse. But for regulatory reasons, at least that's what they're citing, they're unable to step in and come to the rescue um, by uh, by stepping in and basically upping their stake in Credit Suisse during this time of uh, of, of peril. So um, that, in a nutshell, is the, you know the, they were hoping that Saudis would come to a rescue. Maybe they're maybe they're being smart. It wouldn't surprise me if they're playing a clever game and they're just going to leave it longer and leave it later until there's more distress and then you know. Potentially step in and bail out, but the citing regulatory reasons that cannot cross that ten percent holding um, threshold, which is what they're just under now, um, in 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 order to bail them out. So, uh, yeah, what what they have done. So you mentioned uh, the bonds, but also the CDS, the credit default swaps, which crudely put are basically the uh, it's an implied default probability that the market sees um, is skyrocketed today. Yeah. It's been on an upper trajectory, but it's really moved fast today. Hey, James, let um, me ask
1: you this. We've been watching our own bank crises here in the U.S. Final question for you. Do you see other challenges more broadly in the European banking system?
0: So the market certainly seems to think so, because you can see the reaction in the uh, S&P, so the, uh, sorry, the Eurostat, I should say, banking uh, sector, so European banks, across global equity futures as well, not just in Europe, but also spreading globally. Um the fear, is, as, as was the case on Friday with SVB, is that each time we've, because we've been through a financial crisis recently, like the last major um, crisis was a, was a financial one, um, we seem to look to that and assume that the same thing's going to happen again. And it's going to be of a similar magnitude. At this moment in time, it feels like that, just as it did on Friday. But this moment will inevitably pass. However, In the grand scheme of things, if you're not a shareholder in Credit Suisse, which we'll assume you're not, right? This still has implications for us all. From a macro perspective, no matter what you're trading, whether it's crypto, uh, the NASDAQ, or bonds, anything, the way, the volatility that has come into the bond market, and uh, for the reasons that it may shift the Fed and other central banks' uh, course, from hiking to maybe pausing or cutting or having to intervene and ease. It has ramifications across every asset class.
1: James, brilliant stuff. Thank you for tying this all together. I hope you come back and join us here on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing with some more of these flash updates uh, as needed going forward. Hopefully there won't be any. I've got a feeling uh, it may not be the end of it. James Hollow, thank you so much for joining us. Cheers, Ash. Okay, let's bring in our guest. David Duong is the head of institutional research at U.S. Crypto Exchange Coinbase. David, first of all, welcome to Real Vision. It's a pleasure to have you here with us for the first time. So let's start with the big picture. We're in this period of bidirectional volatility. Uh, obviously, as James just covered, lots happening in the markets. Where do we stand right now? What are your thoughts on this market?
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting that uh, you know what James is talking about is one of the strategically important banks inside of Europe. I mean, what we've been seeing inside the u s. has been on the mid-tier, small to medium sized kind of banks, but also more important than I think the you know the layman would actually probably give credit for. You know he's right that there is a lot now in terms of what's going to happen with the Fed. How are they going to interpret this? And unfortunately, like the outcomes that could actually materialize from march twenty second foMC meeting really seem like it's perhaps not an equal distribution. But it's a non-zero probability that any of those scenarios could happen. I mean, it's either probably going to be the Fed decides to pause, which I don't think would be a good look for them because effectively they're they're admitting that there's financial instability and that they have to respond to it, which I don't really see asset prices actually rallying in response to that if it actually occurs. Number two, they could actually hike rates by 25 basis points uh, and then say, like, you know, what, we're going to take a pause uh, after that. But. If they're going to reformat the dot plot, which they said they would do like a week ago, uh, you know, then that also adds to some of the confusion about the messaging on that side of things. And also that would basically be an implicit uh, recognition that the conditions themselves are tightening, which is possible, right? Because you have all these banks who effectively said, you know what, like, uh yeah, we have a facility that we can kind of borrow from the Fed. That's great. But. I don't know if this is the right time now to increase our loan book or to continue buying U.S. treasuries, for example. And conditions will naturally tighten as a result of that. And the third one, which I think is probably the most plausible, but probably not by much, is that they are going to say, you know what, this wasn't systemically important. It's fine. It was more a sector-specific thing, and we're going to have the green light to continue hiking rates. So we'll do 25. Probably won't be a terminal rate of 6%, but... You know, five and a half totally within the realm of possibility, and there, I, I, I it's also still kind of challenging because then the message the the message that I send to the market we're not getting what we want, so equities uh, might also kind of puke in response to that.
1: Yeah, David, important points all. Uh, we're going to wade through those one at a time in just a second. You mentioned asset prices. I just wanted to give a flash update on what's happening in markets this morning. Uh, this burning hot rally has cooled off. The total crypto market cap is down 1.5% on CoinGecko this morning, uh, down to $1.14 Bitcoin is trading just under 25000 Uh So we're off the highs we saw yesterday, obviously, when Bitcoin hit 26000 400 but we're down over five percent over the last 24 hours that's still a gain of about 12 percent on a trailing seven day basis uh, obviously with the last 12 hours uh, 24 hours cooling considerably uh, it's a similar story for where we are in ether although the metrics are slightly more muted compared to bitcoin itself ether is trading at just under 1700 dollars it's now down 4% over the past 24 hours and still up 7.5% on a trailing 7-day basis. We're also keeping an eye on USDC, the second largest stablecoin has effectively regained its US dollar peg. The block says USDC redemptions reached 6.2 billion dollars since Friday, including the single largest redemption ever. In the same period around 1.7 billion worth of usdc was minted taking net redemptions to 4.5 billion uh, david what are your thoughts on this price action today
2: yeah in some ways i see that it's a natural consequence of the run-up that we've gotten over the last few days um some of that was driven more by technical factors i think that there are a lot of shorts going into saturday into sunday um, those got squeezed as we got through like sunday and monday when we Realized that the uh, effectively we got a no bailout bailout coming from the U.S. government and Fed, um, and you know part of that also had to do with the flow kind of coming from finance, which was you know perhaps not the the I think it was the telegraphing more than the size of the position itself like not even all $1 billion has kind of gone through at this point in terms of what Binance has said to buy BNB, like but Bitcoin and ETH. Um, But, you know, I think it sent a strong message to many people that there's someone out there who's kind of backing this. So that offered some market support. Now, of course, the news overnight coming from Credit Suisse, not really feeling good about that, you know, material weakness, what does that mean? I think uh, a lot of people are trying to parse like, you know how bad the situation actually is and they realize that even though like this is a separate issue from the banking crisis or the banking situation inside the US that you know it, overall uh, this this isn't a yeah, this doesn't feel like investors have a lot of confidence
1: hey let me ask you this since you mentioned these so called bailouts a slightly different flavor this time around than the 2007 2008 vintage uh, common stockholders wiped out uh, unsecured creditors wiped out management fired Uh, different flavor, different tone. Does it obviously some concerns uh, from Treasury, uh, from the Fed uh, and from FDIC about moral hazard concerns, about taxpayer dollar concerns. We always hear these uh, conversations. Uh, Does it change the calculus uh, of the way this uh, market is perceiving what happened, David?
2: I think that the government has been very careful to note that it's not a bailout precisely because of what you said, precisely because we're not bailing out shareholders. We're not bailing out bondholders, although to some extent, Bondholders are next in line, like once like the depositors are kind of made whole, assuming right. that there's any available equity kind of be had. Um, but, you know, I would argue that, uh, yes, from that perspective, it's not quote unquote a bailout, but it is a bailout from the perspective of, you know, what the, you know, the government's coming in here and, and the Fed is coming in with a liquidity facility that basically says we will value this at cost rather than at the market value. Which itself was kind of like the most important aspect to this because it allows at least some of that liquidity to kind of uh, be available in the market. But that doesn't mean that conditions are going to improve immediately and they they haven't. I mean, like all, all of these price action, all this price action they were talked about is happening under low liquidity conditions still.
1: yeah, and what choice do they have? I think one of the challenges that they had was this idea that there had been a significant flight uh, from regional uh, banks into the GSIBs, the global systemically important banks uh, in the event that you saw these depositors uh, either get haircut, get delayed, get receivership certificates instead of cash. I mean, they were really in a bind on this one.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, you can't pay your vendors with receivership tickets, you know, like that That doesn't, the world doesn't work that way. Like they need cash in order to kind uh, of, to, to do things, to get stuff. Um, and I Maybe
1: Coinbase that- could set up a secondary market in receivership statistics and trade them against uh, cloud services tokens.
2: Well, I'm sure we I can't say anything about what we're doing, but I'm sure like someone out in the world is, is probably thinking about doing that. Uh, but, you know, and that's really like the challenge, because I don't think from the Fed's perspective that they see this as a systemic risk. But right. really, you ran a huge risk of doing that. Like, I think that was obviously part of the calculus when they decided that they had to, you know, make depositors like full in terms of giving back like everything that they had. Um, but you know, if that hadn't happened, there would have been a massive run on all of these small, medium-sized banks uh, across yeah. the country. And there are a lot of businesses banked with them, and I think people don't realize that because you don't get your, you know, your business loan from J.P. Morgan, for example. Maybe you might, but the one who knows your business best is probably someone local, who's probably you know closer to your community, um, and that's where you're getting your support. So that's where you deposit your money. Uh, And so this would have been a huge, huge disaster if it hadn't been for the action taken on Sunday night.
1: There were a couple of lines in a Wall Street journal article They didn't go into detail, but they were sourcing it to uh, folks who had banked uh, with Silicon Valley Bank, essentially saying uh, that they were required in kind of these bundling arrangements as a consequence of getting their loans uh, from S- uh, from SBV uh, to continue doing uh, banking services with them, uh, which might account for why some of them had so much cash uh, there with the bank uh, SVB that had made those loans.
2: yeah, I can't say for sure that that's you know we can confirm that, but yeah. Um, yeah, Uh, if that's true, I mean, that's also a big factor because then you're incentivized to stay and keep a lot of your, like, keep your business inside of SVB. I mean, in in some ways from SVB's perspective, that's a good idea because one of the problems was that it didn't diversify enough away from just buying debt, for example, right? Like its loan book was, was there, but it was still like, I think what was like $75 billion, something like that compared to like the- you know, like like two hundred billion dollars worth of uh, bonds that they were buying, probably a little bit less than that. Um, so, I mean, they they really needed to find other avenues to actually increase the fees. Perhaps that's one of the reasons that it would make sense that they would have done that. But from the business's perspective, yeah, like you know, like they're they, they 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 have reasons to kind of keep themselves to keep their money in there. And you know, keep in mind these were all like kind of not all, but many were like small tech startups.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if regulators weren't thinking about that uh, in the future and what the implications are for services bundling uh, on a going forward basis. David, got some other uh, news flow here that I wanted to run by you Some uh, to talk a little bit about the frame of the macro picture we're in. I'm just looking at this. I'm literally looking at the table uh, on screen right now, 8.30 this morning, uh, some uh, two major data drops coming out. PPI, FD, uh, that's producer price index, final demand month over month, a uh, negative print minus 0.1%. X food and energy, so-called core, month-over-month, month, uh, 0.0%, 0. Uh, and PPI, uh, FD, year-over-year, year, 46 And X food and energy, <clears throat> excuse me again, core, 44 on a year-over-year year basis. One other data point, this one's really interesting to me. Retail sales, month-over-month, uh, month, minus 0.4%. Uh, X vehicles and gas, obviously these are volatile, 0 x vehicles 0.1 negative print -0.1 uh, on retail sales x vehicles interesting numbers these look uh, well i don't want to i don't want to overstate and say these are deflationary uh, but this is really the challenge that uh, that uh, the fed has they've been trying to balance out these uh, the kind of sisyphus and charybdis of inflation on one hand recession on the other what do you make of these numbers
2: yeah i would say the economic data is incredibly hard to parse at the moment and i mean We kind of forget because the last week has just been, you know, concentrated on bank risk and and what's been going on there. But we haven't gotten any further clarity on what's going on in the economy at the moment. And, you know, the retail sales numbers are a good point because, you know, I was looking at the housing data just last night relative to, like, demand. There's still people who are looking to buy a house out there. I would have thought that that would have corrected sharply and that we'd be seeing that at rates of 6-7% that mortgages like like would be coming down which they have to some extent but like house prices would have to respond to that we haven't really seen that you know if anything um that because of the house type the supply it uh, still is on this side you know like you're seeing that there's an imbalance as far as demand and supply coming on and the housing side retail sales i mean it doesn't really kind of like make sense relative to what we're seeing on inflation i mean like Still, services have been, of course, the biggest component to what's been driving prices higher. Goods have been on a steady trajectory lower. um but you know, like the fact that we have unemployment at three point six percent. I mean, like we've we've never been in a, you know previous uh, recessionary type situation where we had eleven million jobs available to people. Like if you go back to two thousand one, two thousand and eight, for example, there were around four point four million jobs available to people. so by any metric if you compare like eleven million to four point four you're like hey, yeah that's that's pretty good. we're doing okay as far as the economy is concerned except that there are a lot of structural elements to that right yeah, like exactly. we know that you can't realize all of those jobs because of the way immigration patterns have kind of worked over the last couple of years, uh, what happened post pandemic, for example. so, some yeah. of that, like, I'm not moving from New York to get a job in Minnesota or Utah, for example. I, I'm looking for a job in New York, but it's it's not quite there. There's an imbalance geographically. So I think that this creates a lot of yep. challenges for how to see this picture. I still think that the likelihood of recession, you know, it's definitely being pointed to by the three-month, 10-year, for example. Like, I still think it's there. I, I don't think that we're going to avoid it, per se. Um at best, we can probably make it a soft landing, but we're seeing that, you know, a year ago we were saying the Fed's going to keep hiking rates till they break something. Well, we've gotten to that point now. Like, it's, it's very clear that they broke something. Um, so what does this mean for a recession in the economy?
1: Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Yeah, 210 spread flying all over the place these days. Uh, it's still minus about 40 Basis points underwater, tens minus twos. Uh, You mentioned these structural challenges in the labor market, absolutely a factor here. Uh, Some of the existing long-term structural challenges uh, with education and training in the United States exacerbated. Uh, by labor market changes coming out uh, of the COVID crisis. You mentioned banking, David. I also wanted to talk about another story crossing the wire today. Uh, Obviously, crypto companies can no longer rely on crypto-friendly bank Signature, which was shuttered alongside of Silicon Valley Bank over the weekend. Uh, The Signature shutdown raised eyebrows among some crypto analysts who claimed that this looked like a political act to send an anti-crypto message. Uh, This was echoed by Barney Frank, a Signature Bank board member and former lawmaker behind the 2010 Uh, Dodd-Frank Act, of course. However, the New York Department of Financial Services denies those allegations. NYDS says it took over Signature because, quote, the bank failed to provide reliable and consistent data, creating a significant crisis of confidence in the bank's leadership. The challenges with access to traditional banking are not limited to the U.S., of course. In the U.K., NatWest has become another bank to limit crypto payments for its customers. And Paysafe says it will no longer facilitate U.K. payments to Binance. I don't know, David. I think this sounds a little bit like a conspiracy theory to me this idea that uh, somehow, uh, you know, federal regulators, uh, I don't know, engineered a, a bank run to, to stamp out crypto. To me, that seems a little bit paranoid.
2: I mean, it's it's hard to say. First of all, like, um, and I don't have an update on the current status of Signet, but my understanding is that Signet will be back up and operational if it's not already. It's, it's going to happen very soon. Um, so, you know, keep your keep your eyes on that.
1: But by the but, way, does that does that suggest again that this is uh, that maybe some of these claims are overstated? If you have Signet back up uh, once again, this idea that uh, this was all a, a vast conspiracy to snuff out crypto maybe seems a little bit overstated.
2: I would like to give them the benefit of the doubt that they saw potential for contagion risk and that they were trying to contain it, and that there was nothing crypto specific about it. But honestly, it's it's hard to say, especially when Barney Frank is, you know, like he's he, he created the Dodd-Frank Act. So, uh, you know, like when, when he says it, but yes, as you kind of pointed out, he has a sort of a vested interest in signature. Um, yeah, a member
1: of the board for for over a decade, I believe now.
2: Yes. Um, so, I mean, that kind of makes you kind of uh, question a little bit like the, the source yeah. of that statement. Um, but yeah, you know, like I, I want to I hope that that's not the case and that they were acting in the best interest of the system.
1: Yeah, I hope so, too. And and I'm by the way, I'm sure I know that some of our viewers are asking those very questions right now. So it's important to raise them and just talk them through. You know, talking to the banking system, David, more broadly, uh, where do you think we are right now in crypto? What's the current impact with all of these obviously challenging events, even if they were not engineered uh, to be challenging? This is a significant headwind uh, in terms of uh, dollar uh, payment rails and access to uh, from traditional banking to the crypto system.
2: So ultimately, I don't think things are going to change significantly Monday through Friday, but the weekends are probably going to get tougher because you don't mm. have those 24-7 payment rails anymore. And, you know, I think one thing that has come out of all of this is that at some point, you know, we need to have something that's more like uh, idiosyncratic to the, the, the crypto system itself and that the rails that we have are going to kind of work. but. For the moment at least, we still do rely on the traditional banking system to some extent. So, you know, it's gonna take time for our like new banking partners to kind of be created. And I, I have all the faith that they will and that we're gonna we're gonna find them again and that you know other people are looking right now to probably take the place of things like Silvergate and you know, probably take Mark Share away from signature. But, you know, for the time being, probably we're gonna see that. Friday at four o'clock yeah it's gonna be challenging to ha- have a sizable position like it's very likely that you know like the you know bid offer like will like look a lot wider than it has previously um those spreads are gonna need to widen perhaps sizes are be a little bit smaller there could be added volatility for a short period of time I don't know how long that's gonna be um but very likely without okay. like uh the 24 7 payment rails at Kind yeah. of institutions, especially, kind of need. Yeah, I think that we could probably, you know, go back to maybe the first half of 2020 in terms of like some of the the moves that we were seeing over the
1: weekend. Yeah, very well said. By the way, I'm incredibly bullish on weekend Twitter spaces on crypto uh, as a consequence of increased weekend volatility. Uh, we mentioned stablecoins, uh, also part and parcel of this framework of banking. Uh, what are your thoughts on current stablecoin? Uh, state of play. Obviously, we talked a little bit about what had happened at the USDC, depegging uh, over the weekend, repegging, uh, and some of the broader framework on redemptions and creations. What's your overall take on where the stablecoin market is and its role in the crypto ecosystem?
2: I think that we're still looking at stablecoins as one of the potential options as far as payment rails go. Um, so, you know, for a lot, at least, you know, people who are trading on this stuff, I mean, maybe talking about institutions, like if you have your money inside of the ecosystem, still typically it's going to be in stable coins. Um, you know, like the on ramp, off ramp is really where the challenges have been right. created due to the banking like uh, issues over the last few days. Mm-hmm. So getting new money into the system, I think, is one of the tougher parts. But anyone who's in there, they're still going to be using stable coins to basically transact here. Um, so probably we won't see a sizable growth if you aren't able to get those on, on ramps kind of back up. But anything that's in the system right now, at least now we are we have a, a very good read on kind of where the positions are going in and out. So if the stable coin dominance is Going up to 20% means more cash is on the sidelines and vice versa. Um, So I think that is definitely more available. It was interesting over the weekend to kind of see the rebalancing of people's kind of, you know, uh, movements of stablecoins from USDC to USDT. Um, You know, like I come from the traditional banking space. So historically, like transparency to me is always a great thing. But in this particular case, you know, like... I, I think uh, Circle had to do – they did the right thing by saying, listen, we had $3.3 billion sitting with uh, SVB. Um, but, of course, markets took that and said, like, that, that was a bit of concern, whereas Tether doesn't necessarily say where that money is. I mean, they did come out and say, ostensibly, that they don't have anything at SVB. Um, but I think notions like that, I think were, were kind of interesting to watch over the weekend.
1: Yeah, we talked a little bit about macro headwinds, monetary policy, uh, the double bind that the Fed finds itself in, the Scylla and Charybdis of inflation and impending recession. Uh, Overall, how do you attempt to handicap this? How do you frame it out uh, in terms of the big picture of how you're watching these markets?
2: Yeah, so overall, I think that the core thesis for things like Bitcoin, ETH, for many cryptocurrencies actually has been solidified. Based on what we've seen. Uh, definitely with regards to, you know, the, the banking situation in particular, I would say with regards to recession and how the price movements are, like one thing that has been made clear over the last few days, particularly with the run-up uh, post you know SVB, has been that probably the floor is a lot higher for a lot of these assets than we initially perceived. Like at the beginning of the year, like we were looking at. A floor of maybe fifteen thousand. I'm just kind of picking a number out based on like where was trading at in end of December, for example, right. we're a long ways past that, I think at this point. Yeah. There's still risks, though, that you know if equities really takes a major hit for whatever reason, a credit Suisse type event or something like that, um that that could still kind of impact cryptocurrencies. And I think that's part of the reason why we're seeing a correction today. Uh, but I would still say that, Overall, I wouldn't expect it to be like the levels that we saw at the beginning of the year, where I, I think definitely at ways higher than that. And I don't have like a, a great view on what that actual number is, but it's definitely way above kind of where we were to start the year.
1: Hey, what do you think about this relationship between growth equities and crypto? Uh, this is something that trades at a coefficient of correlation of about 0.8, 80 uh, percent during typical risk on cycles. Uh, recently, at least uh, for the last couple of cycles on this, what's your call or outlook on the relationship between those two asset classes?
2: Yeah, at least over like the last four weeks, I would say that number, that coefficient went down pretty sharply. So you're right. It had been at, on risk-on periods that have been, and major risk-off periods, it had been up to around like the 80% level. But like the coefficients come down to, I think, like sub 30% uh, over the course of uh, you know January, February, for example. And I think you actually look on a risk-adjusted basis, and you see that Bitcoin actually outperformed S and P and Nasdaq. Uh, so, in part, you know, it's already decoupled somewhat because I think a lot of people saw how uh, oversold Bitcoin tend to be over the course of two, like Q four two thousand twenty two in particular. Um, also, kind of keep in mind too that. A lot of the supply for a lot of this stuff got locked up, either sitting in government custody, for example, or, you know, people like uh, who wanted to self-custody decided to take it off exchange. Like we saw over the course of like November and December, like around $8 billion worth of Bitcoin, ETH were taken off exchanges. So overall, I would say like it's something like 30, 35 billion dollars that's not circulating in the market right now, which has a big technical impact on what's going on in crypto versus what's going on in the traditional finance sector. Right. So, I mean, like that, I think also contributes to kind of the, the change in correlation that we've seen. But, you know, if there's a major event risk that impacts all risk assets, like, you know, a I, I can't think of one that would happen right now, but it would be like a, let's say a QT type event, like if the Fed decided they wanted to like ramp up the pace of like quantitative tightening, for example, Something like that, I think, would still have a large impact or, say, recession. You know, like, right. and I think that's why we're still kind of watching for what's going to happen in the second half of this year. Because when the two-year tenure, as you kind of already kind of alluded to, or it's it's more like a three-month tenure, to be quite honest, like from an economist's perspective. Two-year tenure to be preferred by traders. Um, but, like, when that happens it's anywhere between like 100 days to 400 days before a recession actually materializes. But at least that's the evidence we've been given over the last 50 years. Yeah. So, you know, we still don't know yet what the impact of that is going to be on these markets because we don't right. know how severe it's going to be.
1: And by the way, find me a historical correlation that hasn't broken down somewhat uh, in the post-COVID era. So I guess additional ambiguity uh, on that. Hey, listen, as we're talking about headwinds, uh, US regulation here in the post FTX era, lots of talk about Nick Carter's choke point 2.0 thesis in the community. Uh, What's your overall take on regulatory headwinds?
2: So I think that first, like these regulators are not a monolith, right? There's a very different perspective From the SEC, from the CFTC, from the New York Attorney General, for example, like Gary Gensler has made his perspective very clear, like in that piece that he uh, that was with the interview in The New Yorker, for example, basically, he's alluding to the fact that anything besides Bitcoin could potentially be deemed a security. but. Even within the C- SEC, I mean, Hester Pierce has a very different view about regulation yeah. by enforcement. Um, and, she you sure know, Ross and Bennett on the CFTC has been very clear that he believes some of these are these all these assets should be treated more like commodities rather than securities. So I think we're still working out. It's interesting that, you know, we're seeing the potential regulatory arbitrage occurring more and more because outside the United States, we're seeing the U.S. progressing. Uh, Mika in Europe is actually making strides and it's probably going to be coming coming into force. Like what's happening in the UAE with Vara and, you know, for virtual asset service providers, like the rules have been made a lot more clear. Hong Kong, I mean, like, like six months ago, they were, you know, seen as, as staunch opposers of this. Now they're yep. opening uh, at least large cap names up to the retail community. So I think yep. that it's not, um, you know, like uh, many U.S. regulators. Like it's it's not beyond them that they've are looking at the rest of the world and saying, like, you know what, maybe we need to start doing something here. So at least I think there's gonna be progress. Um, and we shouldn't just kind of accept this as just like one entity and like their voice in this. Like yep. I, I it, like the, the court case with grayscale is a
1: very good example of that, you know. Like let me just jump in because I want to talk about the court case uh with grayscale in detail in a moment. Uh, but you made so many important points there uh, about this very complex, sort of richly ramified. Uh, system that we have in the United States uh, for regulatory infrastructure. And by the way, for people who uh, are crypto natives who maybe don't have quite as much background in traditional markets, this is not necessarily the standard uh, around the world. The FCA, uh, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, for example, is in fact monolithic. Here in the United States, very complex. uh, And even within, as you point out, uh, SEC different views. I guess it sort of seemed like the the Gensler view was the rising one in the wake of the FTX uh, crisis, as there was a you know considerable amount of public outrage uh, about the challenges that we saw there. Uh, but so many good points. I, you you mentioned Mika. You mentioned uh, the the turnaround in Hong Kong. Obviously, a pretty striking one. The question that I wanted to ask you before we got to DCG uh, is, what do you make of this from a from a U.S. global competitiveness perspective? Uh, do you have the sense? that folks in Washington really understand the magnitude uh, and the importance of staying uh, competitive in this incredibly important new technology that we're all so passionate about?
2: I think that that education level is starting. If it hasn't, if we're not already there, we're definitely increasing to the point where people recognize that this could be an issue of competitiveness in the United States compared to what we're seeing in the rest of the world. And that we need to do something about that. So, you know, I think, as a first blush perhaps you know like a lot of the stories i have come out and you know it's not your, your question the one previous to this one wasn't surprising given the fact that we had just kind of gone through like the sec coming to the settlement with kraken for example or the paxo situation with new york dfs or you know the sec putting out a well's notice on them which i think gives you some indication that they're more worried about centralized entities issues like right. custody more than anything else um rather than say like the like the you know the 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 actual token kind of level kind of concerns um but still i think of course the ftx is still somewhat fresh in people's minds uh and as a result that kind of makes sense that people are kind of focused on the, like the third party entities the centralized entities rather than uh other issues but um, I, I do believe that as they see all these other countries making a lot of forward progress, that, you know, people are have already made the choice. Like Rishi Sunak kind of saying the UK, they want they effectively want to be that crypto tech hub, you know, right. and that this is one way they they want to see themselves doing that. So it's interesting how they're doing it because the approach that's being taken in the UK is different from the one being done in Europe because they're effectively kind of putting this inside of the system, the existing system. And putting it alongside other financial instruments, whereas like it's kind of being considered separately inside of Europe with Mika. Um, I think that the good thing that comes out of all this is that at least we get to see the, 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 you know, the spectrum of options available to us about how we kind of want to regulate things. But I don't think it's lost on many people that a lot of countries are moving ahead and we're still kind of lagging.
1: Yeah, by the way, I'm sure there are lots of folks in Europe, in Asia, in MENA markets uh, who are eager to to develop their own Silicon Valley, their own uh, Sand Hill Road. That's obviously something that's very appealing uh, to a lot of different nation states because uh, of the potential benefits. And I hope we can see it here in the United States as well. Uh, We mentioned earlier uh, DCG, uh, the Grayscale, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Uh, Obviously, that's been quite a story over the last several months. Uh, David, what are your thoughts there?
2: Yeah, I think that the probabilities have flipped somewhat to see a favorable outcome to Grayscale. So when this case that the SEC, uh, that Grayscale brought against the SEC regarding its ETF uh, was first,
1: you know, Cur- current uh, this is GBTC we're talking about here. Obviously, currently a closed-end fund. The the quest uh, to turn it into an ETF is uh, what they filed suit over.
2: Right, uh, and a spot ET- a spot Bitcoin ETF in particular, like because. Of course, the SEC has approved futures uh, Bitcoin ETFs. And that's really the issue, I think, uh, for the court case at the moment. Like, the SEC has wanted to make this a case of concerns over market manipulation. And that's why they want to have like surveillance sharing agreements with some entity that's out there, unnamed, of course, from the SEC's perspective. Uh, but effectively, they want transparency over the transactions that occur inside the the spot market for crypto because their belief is that on a tick-by-tick basis, like there are players out there that are trying to push prices one direction or another. And effectively, uh, one of the things that came out of the uh, at least oral arguments with the court is that like they wanted, they questioned the SC on how they see the difference between spot and futures because they believed, I think it was like Naomi Rao who said this, that like those that that price actually moves together 99.9% of the time. Now the SEC's right. response to that is that like well you're you're picking like one point out of the day also like this has been uh, we're only doing it through CME and we have transparency on CME um but I think that was still a very big win because this is what a lot of crypto natives have been saying for some time now and we didn't know if the court was going to see it our way so I think that this is a powerful signal that Grayscale actually stands a chance to actually perhaps have a favorable outcome for them here.
1: Hey, everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Hey, David, speaking of privacy, uh, one of the things that I know you've written about is the current state of Web3. Privacy, obviously, one of the major concerns there. What's the overview 50,000 foot of where you see us right now?
2: Yeah, so I think that we've made clear what our position is. You know, we released, like uh, Coinbase, that is, released a wallet as a service. Uh, you know, we've been trying to push further into the decentralized space with, you know, our layer two on Ethereum base. So, you know, we want to make sure that, like, the system itself remains permissionless and decentralized and that this has been our view. Um, and I think that this is kind of the ethos of Web3. You know, like, I think what people miss when we talk about Web3 is that it takes a lot for us to kind of get there. It's not one thing that that Web3 represents or that, like, one technology could do and unlocks all this stuff. It's everything, right? You need to have decentralized identity that uh, allows people to, you know, carry over and port over their personalities from, like, different uh, social media and kind of uh, applications, for lack of a better word. Uh, you know, like, and that would then kind of feed into what we have with Noster and Forecaster and all the kind of stuff like that. Right. Um, but we also kind of need that uh, the, the rails to kind of make this fast enough to do it. Because if I need to pay gas fees in order to post something on a Twitter-like substitute on on a weathery scale, I'm not going to do it because like it has to be cheap, you know. So if we can make that like like fractions of a penny on a dollar. Then that becomes a lot more amenable. So all these things need to be kind of built up. Um, and I think that we're going towards a direction that more people recognize that, you know, we need this to be decentralized. It's not going to be like uh, any, any centralized entity. Like what we're trying to do is open this up to 110 million users and allow people who are buying this stuff to actually participate in the ecosystem.
1: Yeah, by the way, I should say you mentioned Coinbase a couple of times there. For those watching who are wondering why we're not talking about Coinbase, your remit is to focus outward on what's happening in the markets more broadly and not to comment internally on what's happening at Coinbase. That's right. Thanks okay, David, I just wanted to uh two other questions before we close here. I wanted to get your outlook on Bitcoin and Ethereum. First, Bitcoin, what's the outlook going forward?
2: So my perspective is still that probably over the next six to nine months. I mean, a lot of this is going to be contingent on what happens with the Fed, right? Because if they remain on an aggressive uh, tightening stance, and we see that you know real rates, which are still negative at the moment, uh, start to kind of creep higher, then yeah, that's going to put us in a more difficult position. But assuming that you know the SVB situation, like you know, make something think twice about that, and we could see that uh, the, the cycle actually is, is starting to come to an end, which is what I believe. I think that the tightening cycle is going to end fairly soon, and that it's only like maybe another two, maybe three more rate hikes that they still have left in the pocket. Um, then, you know, we could actually see the next six to nine months being fairly benign, actually be possibly being good uh, for Bitcoin uh, as an asset. Now, I'm not going to pick a price level because, you know, like, you know, that's my own view. Like, I, I you know, we, as a whole, Coinbase remains agnostic uh, to, like, how prices kind of move up or down. Um, but I think that if we take into consideration, like, many people's overall thesis about what's going on with Bitcoin, like, I mean, I, I think back to what happened last year, for example, with, like, the trucker striking Canada or the sanctions against Russia. Like how those formed a lot of views about people's view on crypto uh, because of you know what it represents as far as being outside of the system. I think that actually presents a very strong kind of position for Bitcoin, particularly as a store of value. Mm. Also, technologically, a lot of developments have been happening. So, Ordinals, for example, helping supporting miners like minor fees are up like a full over one standard deviation over the last year, for example. So that actually improves the level of security here. People are talking about, you know, other layer twos that could be operating. Like Bitcoin perhaps isn't necessarily becoming like the asset that people are going to use to buy a coffee or a pizza, but it could be used to facilitate a lot of the stablecoin payment rails that are kind of being done. So you pay a little bit of Bitcoin in order to use the USDC that you have on Lightning Network, for example, to, to buy something or sell something. So I think things like that are going to be quite interesting and are going to be more fully developed over the course of the year. Uh, and as far as Ethereum goes, you know, obviously the Shanghai Fork still represents a very big uh, event risk for this market. I tend By the way, let's,
1: let's describe uh, the importance of the Shanghai Fork uh, in terms of moving, staking along for people who are not as familiar with it as you are.
2: Sure. So we had the merge, uh, which basically uh, combined the execution consensus layers uh, for Ethereum back in September of 2022. The next big aspect of it that would really complete the merge, so to speak, is having the Shanghai fork, which would enable state ETH withdrawals. Um, for anyone who's listening who doesn't who isn't familiar with that, effectively like uh, the merge transitioned Ethereum to a proof of stake consensus mechanism, which means that validators actually put up a stake of 32 ETH in order to secure the network. So it's very different from Bitcoin or uh, from Bitcoin or proof of work, where you're actually in a race to actually compete, to actually uh, you know, mine the next block, for example. Uh, one of the challenges, though, is that you've had to make this liquidity versus yield kind of trade-off with Ethereum yeah. because you didn't know when you could get back that uh, state ETH that you put up in order to validate the network. So if you're a validator, which represents around like 15% of total ETH supply at the moment, um, if you're a validator, like, you know, you were probably doing this without you know, full knowledge about when you could get back your tokens. You just kind of had faith that it was going to happen at some point. Well, now that kind of day is here. We know that it's probably going to be at some point in the first half of April, more likely like mid-April at some point. And uh, this will finally allow people to get it back. The Concern people have is that by, by allowing those withdrawals to happen, you could see a lot of ETH coming onto the market, and that would create a lot of selling pressure. I don't necessarily believe that that's going to be the case. Uh, I do think that more likely, unfortunately, it's going to be a risk-on-risk-off event as far as if risk sentiment is doing well at that point in time, I could completely see that it won't put a lot of selling pressure on the market. But if you look at just the technicals, a lot of the selling pressure will come from the partial withdrawals because that's going to unlock somewhere around like 1.1 million ETH of supply. And then you'll see that full withdrawals, You know, you have Kraken, who is going to have forced withdrawals, and that's somewhere around 1.14 million ETH or so. And then more than likely, I think solo stakers probably represent the next largest contingent of people who might be withdrawing. But I would still think that the amount of withdrawals could be well-absorbed in a market where the actual, like, trading volumes per day is somewhere around $8.2 billion. So I think that we're still going to be limited to, like, maybe $100 million worth of potential e-selling pressure. That math has changed slightly because now we can see around 1,800 validator exits per day. Um, But I still think that's well within the limits of what the market could absorb.
1: Hey, by the way, moving uh, on on to selling pressure uh, on Bitcoin, one thing I forgot to ask you about, and I know that you're following closely, is the Mt. Gox distribution, 140,000 plus Bitcoin there. What potential impact do you see on market reaction for that?
2: So first of all, that has been delayed. So initially, like uh, March 10th, of course, obviously the deadline passed by five days already, like given the day we're recording this. Um, but like that's been now moved to the beginning of April for people to register on that. And then like initially the distributions would have started uh, at the end of September. Now it's been pushed back to the end of October. But also even uh, within the uh, the terms of the Mountain Gox Rehabilitation Trust, like, it's just that, like, everyone would uh, would need to kind of be paid first before it would be allowed to be, to hit the market. So that's number one. Um, so that kind of limits the actual market impact, at least on a, on a first glance. Number two is uh, at least the top two uh, creditors for Mt. Gox have said that they want to be paid in Bitcoin or in uh, the native asset. Um, because you know there's other things being distributed besides just Bitcoin, uh, okay. and you know effectively they would they have already said that they would hold on to that. By the way, they're not going to sell that immediately into the market, and that represents around 20% of the Bitcoin right there. So that also is a limiting factor. We've seen a lot of hedge funds and private equity firms actually buying up a lot of these claims in the past. Um, and, you know, those that contingent, uh, that means already the people who wanted to sell had an outlet to sell uh, to, to someone else. So very likely that means that anyone who's still going to have a claim here probably be more likely to hold rather than sell, although that's kind of speculative at this point. So I'm not overall terribly concerned about Mountain Gox representing a, a huge amount of supply hitting the market and uh, creating a forced selling event.
1: So, one more question here, jumping back to Ethereum. Uh, two secular headwinds that I'd really like to get your view on. Uh, the first, of course, uh, is this notion that Ethereum may be treated as a security by certain government regulators. Uh, one thing that we've seen here in the past weeks is the Attorney General for the State of New York filing suit in state court, the New York State Supreme Court, uh, with the assertion that ETH is, in fact, a security. I know this gets complicated, but this is not in the Southern District of New York. This is the Supreme Court uh, of New York. So, a state case uh, here. And the second, Uh, question is this uh, about, and and again, this is kind of the implications of staking in this transition, uh, and that is about OFAC, the Office of Foreign Asset Controls at Treasury, uh, which is the primary sanctions regulator here in the United States. What happens uh, when publicly traded companies that operate stake pools uh, that have U.S. persons as directors and officers, U.S. persons as managers, uh, are administering a stake pool that may have a transaction? That sanction uh, on the OFAC SDN list. Uh, this, to me, seems like a real question uh, that's been talked about theoretically, but probably hasn't gotten the attention it deserves. Any thoughts about those headwinds for Ethereum and if they could potentially be price impact from them?
2: Yeah, I think that the uh, the first headline you kind of mentioned with the New York Attorney General is a big one, and probably if it hadn't been for SVB, this is something that I think markets would have talked about more heavily. I mean. As it is, like, I think people are are still kind of thinking about it and, and the implications of it. Uh, I mean, from the Coinbase perspective, we've been very clear, right, that everything that we list on our exchange, for example, is not a security. Like, you know, we, we've kind of vetted it from the perspective of the Howey test and kind of looked at it uh, from there. From, and we, we've kind of written blogs and put out tweets on this already. If you haven't seen it already, please visit our blog that explains why we do not believe these things are securities, but you know I think uh a big part of that too had to be had, was what's kind of the staking aspect of it because I think we've seen not just um one regulator but primarily the SEC um kind of pointing out like oh you know these things are potentially uh securities because of the uh, yield that you might earn from a staking a, a staked product like eth for example, which one, it doesn't accrue to everyone who's an ETH holder, by the way, but there is no common enterprise when it comes to these things. And I think that's kind of what people are missing when they they look at ETH in particular, because I think it wasn't just ETH, but it was specifically that post-merge ETH, right? Because as I kind of said earlier, we transitioned to that proof of stake. Has that transition to proof of stake changed anything for Ethereum? Well, the reality is like, like, it's not through anything that Coinbase is doing, like our third party entity. Like, you know, you kind of mentioned staking within, like, kind of the context of the OFAC and all the, all the other stuff. I mean, like, it's nothing that we're doing that is allowing people to have yield. We're getting this is a yield coming from the protocol, and people aren't doing that with this expectation of profit. They're performing a duty of securing the network and receiving a reward for that. I mean, that's what's going on. Like Coinbase is just basically acting as an intermediary to pass intermediary, excuse me, to pass through those rewards.
1: So, so in other words, it's not staking as a service; it's organic yield generated by the protocol itself.
2: Exactly, and I think that that doesn't fit in to the criteria set forth by the Howey test. If indeed the Howey test should be the metric uh, through which we judge things should be a security or not.
1: Yeah, it's also fascinating, this idea of sufficient decentralization uh, and working out some of the legacy history with pre-mining and this and the token sale uh, at Ethan, sort of decoupling that from where it is today. This is a really interesting thing. I don't think there's anything really quite like this in capital markets where you have this structural transition uh, of the entity, the protocol itself into something that is completely different than where it was in, you know, I don't know, 2014 Uh, on the OFAC list. Question, any thoughts on the the challenges uh, faced by stake pools, uh, particularly regulated stake pools here in the United States? I think that's what a lot of stake
2: pools are wrestling with. And you've kind of seen the response from Lido and, you know, like uh, one question, I, I think one area where the community believes this could kind of uh, not propel, but like basically encourage more people to kind of get into is more kind of decentralized kind of solutions. Like Rocket Pool was seen to be a beneficiary of some of those headlines, for example, which right. I don't think it necessarily materialized, uh perhaps for, for various reasons. You know, I, I think that you still see that some of the centralized entities like have have some advantages that a rocket pool may not, but rocket pool is also changing in terms of making these things a lot more capital efficient, both from the stakers kind of perspective, uh, and then like how the users are gonna be benefiting from that because. You know, they have the LEB8 proposal out that kind of means that you're staking. You don't need to put up 32 ETH. You only got to put up 8 ETH. So I think things like that uh, could be the dire- possible direction of travel. I mean, like Coinbase, for example, we actually just released our LS ETH uh, institutional staking grade product, which actually introduces elements of KYC and AML into it. So if you're an institutional client, uh, you know, you are able to still stake but have a pool that, uh, or rather, excuse me, have a, a service that you could utilize that you can actually trust that, uh, you know, everything in there has been undergone the, the, the proper kind of uh, regulatory uh, checks and procedures. So I think that things like that potentially could be better supported in that kind of
1: environment. Yeah, And there are also other p- possibilities, I should point out, like a kind of pre-processing pool uh, for uh, managing those transactions uh, before they get to the stake pool. Uh, David, a- excellent, excellent conversation. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our viewers and listeners with.
2: Yeah, you know, I think that many people have seen uh, the last few months has been particularly challenging for, for crypto. If anything, I feel more encouraged by it particularly because we have gone through all of these events. Like, you know, every th- every time something happened from Terra Luna or Celsius or 3 Arrows Capital to FTX, I mean, like, there was, don't get me wrong, like, a, a moment where we all kind of were just like, <gasps> like, what's going what's gonna to happen next? But I'm more encouraged by the fact that we have continued to move along. And, you know, the deleveraging the system is now kind of done. You know, we've, like the, the fears of additional kind of uh, events, event risks kind of materializing. At least I, I would say the impact that we see on crypto is a lot more limited than what we expected, SVB being the latest example of that. So I believe that, in quite the contrary, like all these stories that we're getting kind of, um, if anything, like solidifies kind of the view, like ossifies the arguments. For why mm. crypto should exist, particularly like with regards to the vulnerabilities inherent in the banking system.
1: Yeah, extremely well said. Spectacular conversation. I hope you can come back more frequently and do this again with us. That'll no, be my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again, David. Really a pleasure having this conversation. That's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with Ram Aluwalia and Perry Ann Boring. Also, make sure to check out realvision.com as well. We have an important two part series there called How to Unf Your Future. It features some of the most visionary thinkers and investors we know. This week, we're exploring all the solutions with a lineup of true experts like Angus Shillington and Dwight Anderson. Go to realvision.com forward slash UNFK. That's realvision.com. Forward slash unfk to get free access. See you all tomorrow live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Have a great day, everybody.
0: If we want to change the outcomes for this really screwed up world where our wages don't go up, where we're being replaced by technology, where governments are massively in debt and we foot the bill via taxes, where we see debasement of assets so we can't afford as many assets as we like, so the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. If we don't like to see the rise of populism based on this broken society because the promises of the future have been broken, let's make our promises to our future selves come right. And that's by unfucking your future. Some of this is going to really your future in 20 or 30 years' time, but we've got time to figure that out because it's unstoppable.